Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to another awesome episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today's episode is a particularly awesome one. We are doing our first toolbox talk, and the goal of a toolbox talk will be to present different concepts or frameworks in which to think about world events. We'll have a few examples. And since these different frameworks can lead to different conclusions, what's the right course of action to take for a democracy, regardless of your personal opinion? We're hoping that you find these toolbox shows helpful in reconsidering a number of issues in ways that you haven't before. And we're definitely going to be doing more of these in the future. The hope is the more tools you have in your toolbox, the more adept you'll be at interpreting events in ways you might not have considered before. And so, obviously, give us feedback, send us notes about what you thought, what toolbox talks you might want to hear about, stuff like that. So today what we're going to talk about is different ways that countries use power in diplomacy. So we're going to be discussing hard, soft, and smart power. And if you don't know what those are, that's fine. That's our job. Context is what we do. Understanding these different frameworks of power is important for understanding different foreign policy decisions. So if you have different theories of interpreting reality, that leads to different strategies, that leads to different decisions. But the reason today is especially awesome is we are joined by Kelsey, who runs the Women in Diplomacy podcast, and she is a rock star in the podcasting field. She interviews tons of diplomats, gets lots of big names, really, really insightful podcasts, lots of fun to listen to, and uh, she's way more expert in this stuff than we are. Uh, We've got a link to her podcast on the blog. Obviously, you should check it out. We love it. We recently did an interview with her, so you should go take a look at that, but we are... Very lucky and very privileged to have her on the show with us today, gracing us with her wisdom. Kelsey, welcome. Thank you. And why don't you tell us and our listeners a bit about yourself? Hi, considerates. Hi, Xander. Hi, Eric. Thank you guys so much for having me on. And hi to everyone out there. It's it's great to meet you please come on over. I'd love to see you listening to Women in Diplomacy. It's where I'm working on encouraging more young women to go into foreign policy careers. So there's lots of fun discussion. It's a great source of new knowledge. And most importantly, mentorship is happening. You guys can all check out the workshop episode on research to hear Xander and Eric 
laying down some sweet knowledge on research tactics and developing research as a skill. Dropping knowledge bombs. Exactly. But I mean, that's why I'm such a fan of Reconsider because you two just do excellent research on your topics and then get it out to your audience in, in really informative and digestible ways. So I'm excited to be a part of it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I know one thing that you do on your podcast is make sure to state your biases outright. So I will go ahead and say I'm trained in public diplomacy, which is the art of using soft power around the world to achieve foreign policy goals. Great examples of public diplomacy include international broadcasting and cultural programming. It's when you are a government and you're working to influence foreign audiences abroad, but I like to think of it in a a wider sense and more innovative ways. This training in public diplomacy has given me the perspective that I think actions by nations on the international stage won't always happen in a textbook way that we should always consider context. And we should consider what influenced a culture or a region to act in a certain way and how we can then use that to understand what diplomatic choices we should reach for. You know, the world is becoming a more complex place every day. And I will always be likely to vote for a more nuanced and more well-rounded strategy rather than sticking to a doctrine just to stick to it on principle. So now you know my point of view that I'm bringing to this Toolbox episode. Yeah, and we're excited to have it. I think what's really going to be cool and fun about this episode is Kelsey is very experienced with her background in public diplomacy and soft power and therefore smart power, which we'll talk about in a greater degree. And Eric, a big part of his master's thesis from MIT was about the application of hard power and how that can result in interstate warfare in different sorts of circumstances. So I'm excited to dig into this with both of you today. So real quick, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's show, we have just one small request for you. You can find our podcast on iTunes, and we would be so appreciative if you would hop on there, give us a quick review and rating. That'll help us get our podcast out to more folks who might find this material interesting. Additionally, please do check us out on Twitter at ReconsiderPod. We post daily or every other day interesting stories that are sometimes relevant, sometimes not relevant to our podcast episodes. You can also find us on Facebook at ReconsiderPod. So we're talking about three concepts today, uh, hard power, soft power, and smart power. And if that seems a little jargony, don't worry. We're going to break all of this down. Just for the sake of clarity, these terms are not our terminology. They are concepts that exist as potential strategies out there in the foreign policy world. So I'll first briefly describe what each of these kinds of power means, and then we'll go into a little bit more detail, provide some examples, talk about how different options could arise from interpreting a given situation through these different frameworks. Then we'll end with an open discussion of you know, some potential merits and pitfalls, so pros and cons of each of these potential strategies that policymakers and therefore citizens, such as yourself, should keep in mind. So brief, brief summary. Hard power is essentially the use of force or specifically coercion in order to influence the events of other actors. So 
coercion includes economic sanctions and stuff like that that isn't direct force but is is not playing nice soft power is the ability to influence through attraction to values in a culture rather than coercion so so the u.s has western culture and in the cold war this was a soft power ability that we wielded smart power is essentially the combination of the two it is the carrot of soft power plus the stick of hard power. So this guy named Joseph Nye coined the term smart power in 2003 when he recognized that the policy community was essentially not convinced of the effectiveness of soft power alone, and he wanted to show how soft power could be wielded more effectively with a synthesized strategy. And Kelsey, I think you know a good deal more about Joseph Nye and the genesis of this term than I do. Do you want to sort of talk about how that came about? He is certainly the father of soft power and all things smart power. So if you are looking to learn more, definitely pick up any one of his books because it's a through line throughout. He also teaches at Harvard if you want to stop by for a class. In general, smart power has really been on the rise, I would say, throughout the Obama administration and specifically under Secretary Clinton. So I, I have a question. <clears throat> and the word smart, it seems almost unfair. It's sort of like saying there's soft power and hard power and good power, awesome power, objectively correct power. It just seems like a kind of a cop-out catch-all. It's like, oh, sometimes you use hard power and sometimes soft and sometimes both. Is it is it really fundamentally different in some way than just applying both hard and soft power? Is you know, because it just sounds like, okay, yes, you should obviously be using some combination. Does it provide us with any real guidance? That's a really good question that you bring up, Eric, because especially right now in the media and in politics, these terms are really starting to get thrown around. And in truth, I agree with you because I think smart power is still being defined and it's still being understood. In many ways, it can feel like a catch-all, but that's why we're doing this episode today to help you know when it is identifiable and how to implement it in a foreign policy strategy. In general, the word soft has often scared more traditional foreign policy practitioners because in its nature, it implies kind of rolling over and showing your belly, so to speak. It's also often equated with the feminine. So that can lead to a gender divide between the hard, more militaristic policies, and then the soft, more cultural-oriented and, and development-oriented policies. I think the concept of smart power rocks because it brings the two together, which is how they should be operating anyways. At this point, the world is changing every day. We've got to, it's time to yield every tool in our toolbox that we have, right? So why not just bring them all together? I think there is a range of choices within smart power, which is why it's so fascinating. And I'm so glad you guys made it a toolbox episode, but there's not necessarily a playbook for smart power and it's going to be our generation's task to write it. Yeah. And I think soft power, it might be one of these terms where the words used imply something that isn't necessary to imply. I mean, you talk about how 
diplomacy practitioners are kind of afraid because it's like soft power is like showing your belly. But I mean, if you just called it cultural power, then there would be a sufficient distinction from force without all the connotations that come with the word soft. Yeah. So I actually think hard power also gets a bad rap because I think people hear hard and they're like, ooh, that's mean. That's like mean power. That's, you know, the, the United States has in the last 20 years not done a great job using its hard power. And I think that makes people think, oh, that's, it's bad. We should just not do it. But Eric, Iraq turned out so great. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that there is a gap between a, having a strategy and a strategy well applied. So what is hard power? As Andrew said, it's coercion, right? So what we're saying is we want you to do something. You don't want to do it, but we're going to make you want to do it because it's going to be more pleasant to do what we want than to not do what we want. So this is done obviously through military force. Uh, so, you know, either threat of invasion or actual invasion, embargoes or economic methods like sanctions or even bribes, just straight up paying somebody to do something. All this stuff falls under the hard power category because what you're doing is instead of trying to influence a society, you're going to the decision makers and government saying, look, this is going to happen and it's going to be right now materially better for you to do it than to not do it. So you can think of, I'm sure, lots of examples of military threats, either implied or explicit, sanctions, embargoes. And sometimes, of course, military action is even used to change decisions of different countries. It's not just we need to beat you into the pulp so you stop doing whatever you're doing, but sometimes it's used quite tactically. So a good example is when China invaded Vietnam in the late 1970s to get them to stop mucking around in Southeast Asia. They were in and out real fast. I think that's worthy for just of a real quick tangent because I think it's a war that a lot of Americans aren't aware of. And it was basically Vietnam III. It was a war in Vietnam that happened after the U.S. wound down its war in the mid-70s. And this war occurred in 1979. China basically made this really rapid major offensive in order to check Vietnamese power and prevent a Southeast Asian confederation being formed, but basically by Vietnam. And at that time, Vietnam had been leaning more towards the USSR and China and the USSR were really high tension in that situation, didn't like each other. And China was basically worried that if a Southeast Asia Confederation were formed, then they would be effectively surrounded by the USSR and its allies. And if you'll remember what Eric and I talked about, this millennia-old Chinese foreign policy that continues to this day on our Little Rocks episode, it is keep the barbarians divided. So they made a really quick offensive and just checked the Vietnamese expansion. Yeah, and hilariously, it smells a lot like containment and maybe even a little bit like domino theory, which was the U.S.'s approach there and totally failed in Vietnam, but the Chinese did it so well. And so this may be an example of where hard power was an effective potential strategy. We just did it poorly, and China did it well. And so there are all these good examples of the United States using hard power in more explicit ways poorly, but that doesn't mean it's fundamentally a bad idea. So I think the way that the United States uses hard power best is through overwhelming force and implicit threats. So one of those examples is, you know, just having the largest Navy out there full stop, like bigger than everyone else put together, that's using hard power to say, look, the seas are going to stay open and you're not going to mess with it. But there's also carrots that you can use, like trade deals, military protection, uh, alliances, aid, you know, putting missile batteries in Romania, stuff like that to 
try to influence their policy as well. Yes. And China has been really good at these carrots, so to speak, especially in Southeast Asia, to create regional strength and to make sure that smaller nations who are in need of aid or relying on outside help to recover from environmental disasters, for example, China has been at the forefront, essentially making sure that the region relies on them economically, and that increases their power. But then also, China's economic power has been thriving in Africa. This is a really curious case to me, because they are willing to make investments where no one else wants to, on things that no one else wants to touch, either because they're in dangerous areas or there might be moral or environmental implications. But in this way, where they are inserting themselves where no one else wants to be, they take advantage of the opportunity to build power there. Yeah, so hard power is generally something that larger countries, more powerful countries have the luxury to use against smaller ones. You know, obviously we're not going to have Nigeria using hard power against the United States anytime soon, except in its own, you know, region, right? You know, for example, like Afghanistan, the Taliban can make it, can use hard power to make it really, really hard for the United States to exert its will in Afghanistan, but they're not going to be able to change our foreign policy anywhere else. So just a final note, hard power is not to be confused with realism or real politic. I think people often look at those and they think, ooh, you're a real politic guy and that that's your strategy, but realism and real politic are frameworks for understanding the international order, and they're, they're less a strategy, where exerting hard power is a strategy. So the hard power countries we often think of are obviously the United States, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and sometimes the UK, because they have a large enough military to you know, make a big impact, and they use that military on the continent on the European continent, whenever things get icky there. Right. So you can use realism to interpret the world, world, but still use both hard and soft power. Okay. That's an overview of hard power. What about soft power? Well, mentioned a little earlier that this guy, Joseph Nye, coined the term smart power. He also earlier coined the term soft power. So smart power was a response to people in the policy community not liking this term that he had previously created. Soft power is basically the ability to attract or encourage cooperation through non-coercive means, which, if you remember, was the primary definition in hard power, coercion. So soft power is a non-coercive means of influence, and usually this means that you're using the attractiveness of a certain state or country's culture, and that's inherently related to the legitimacy of its policies and the values that underlie them. So an example of soft power would be the relative attractiveness of Western culture to people who were living in the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. People in uh, East Europe and Central Asia that were under essentially Soviet influence, their economies were suffering and people didn't have a lot of spending money and disposable income. Jobs were scarce and jobs were available you know, didn't pay very well. People weren't doing that great. And then all of a sudden they would look to the West and see, oh man, there's all this opulence out there. Why don't we have that? So that's, and that's an example of an effective soft power strategy that the U.S. used in the Cold War. Great examples of global soft power are when we have amazing international events like the Olympics or the World Cup, because that is true cultural power in action, especially when we have any especially when there's any sort of ceasefire enacted 
during those events. And it's a space where nations come together to cooperate only on cultural issues. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really important tenet of soft power is that it can either be wielded directly and explicitly by a government, or it could be wielded indirectly through things like the Olympics or through like U.S. brands uh, like McDonald's and Coca-Cola. These are all, in a way, forms of the implementation of soft power. Certainly, Hollywood films is an example of soft power. We, quote, we, the U.S., export these films, and Hollywood has a way of generally, not always, making Western society look appealing. You know, some other examples in the Cold War of soft power that was wielded explicitly by the U.S. would be like educational exchanges like the Fulbright Fellows or the Radio Free Europe, which the Radio Free Europe project, and this was started in 1949. Essentially, it's like an anti-communist news source, and it broadcasts to Soviet satellite countries all throughout Eastern and Central Europe. So soft power can kind of go either way. Yeah, I just want to take this opportunity to point out that sometimes I think people look at soft power and they say, well, it's a safe bet, always a safe bet to use soft power. And sometimes I think it, we need to be careful that it might backfire tremendously. Uh, so, for example, some political scientists that I really respect believe that the rise of radical Islam in the Middle East, North Africa, etc., is due primarily to the fairly aggressive exportation of American values into the area. This is a reactionary movement that is trying to expel liberalism and materialism from the area and like return and, and return to religious rule because they just find this very threatening to their value system. For sure. If you don't have an appealing culture, you can't really use a culture to convince other people if it's not appealing, right? Exactly. It always depends on who your target audience is who your message and your culture is going to appeal to. Totally. So Eric, a, a minute ago, mentioned the UK and its ability to wield hard power, certainly historically on the European continent. We talked on our last episode about Brexit, and this could kind of be Brexit, British exit from the European Union. That can kind of be an example of a global event that can actually impact the Western culture's ability to effectively wield soft power. So the UK, a lot of people say, and we covered this in a little bit more depth on the prior show, but a lot of policymakers and politicians say that the UK can more effectively influence the world through its soft power by being a member of the European Union. And if Brexit occurs, then they may lose that ability to influence the European Union's policies and therefore the soft power capabilities of Western culture generally may be debilitated. Not everyone agrees with that. But um, Joseph Nye, this guy who we're talking about, who coined the term soft, smart power, recently said in an article that, quote, the geopolitical consequences of Brexit might not appear immediately. The EU might even temporarily pull together, but there would be damage to Europe's sense of mission and its soft power of attraction. So he's describing, you know, the de decreased ability to wield soft power and how that could sh ultimately shift the global balance of power between this Western liberal international order and basically the rest of the world. What's important to note is soft power always takes much longer to cultivate, much longer to build than hard power. Hard power is typically really quick to yield and it's measurable, whereas soft power almost always doesn't have any way to measure its impact. 
It's more of a feeling. Yeah, and that makes intuitive sense, right? Because if we need to respond quickly to some sort of threat, we can be like, oh, go bomb them, go bomb them now. And, you know, we can bomb another country fairly quickly with our capabilities. But if we need to influence some other part of the world through soft power, what do we say? Go quick, change our cultural values right now over the next 10 years. It takes time to wield soft power effectively. Exactly. Now, I think an important part of the concept of smart power is sort of what it means. We talked about this a little bit, and there are you know, connotations with the word soft that don't aren't necessarily helpful. But policy wonks say that soft power is descriptive, not normative. And all that means is that the term soft power does not have a built-in good or bad value judgment. It just describes the implementation of a particular type of capability. So this is important to keep in mind because while it's easy to think soft is good, hard is bad, soft power can just describe actions and that might actually be describing the actions of someone using soft power for a nefarious purpose. So Hitler was very skilled at wielding soft power and he kind of, you know, cobbled together this hodgepodge of German historical ideas and nationalism and fear of being in the center of Europe into this deadly culture that nonetheless, at the time, had mass appeal. Similarly, you could also argue that ISIS is skilled at wielding soft power in as much as they're able to convince people from all around the world to come and join them in this fight in Syria. Yeah, we're getting crushed in the soft power game against ISIS right now. They have a much more appealing message, obviously to a smaller group, but that small group is inspired to leave their homes, leave their jobs, leave their countries and come fight. Whereas our message mostly at best keeps people at home. So I would say we could, you know, before we define a few traditionally hard power countries, I would say if we want to do that for soft power countries, you could definitely look at Switzerland, for example, its culture of efficiency makes it a very great partner, especially in investment. Um, India has a lot of soft power, particularly because of its distinct culture. I mean, also the cheap labor, um, the warm hearted attitude of kind of the yoga culture there. I'm not trying to make generalizations or embrace stereotypes at all, but essentially when you think of all of the cultural things that make us want to go visit a country or make us want to work with a country, um, that can be considered soft power, any sort of form of attraction. Great. So we've defined hard power. We've defined soft power. Let's talk about smart power. What is it? Essentially, it's using both hard power and soft power together to achieve a foreign policy goal. So imagine, right, soft power is that carrot, that power of attracting, moving someone forward. Hard power is the stick, the power that is forcing someone forward from behind. So imagine how powerful this could be if you are using both and then some. Let's bring up some examples just to explain. I would pinpoint the UK as a classic model of a smart power, a leading smart power on the global stage right now. So culturally, the UK has a very exportable culture. It's very distinct, it's very attractive, 
many countries emulate this and as a result i think it really brings in a lot of cooperation for for the uk particularly they killed their olympics it was an amazing explosion of reminding the world why we all love to be a part of the uk's culture enjoy the uk's music television shows comedy art history and then it has a very capable and extensive military that pretty much every other world power is vying for to have it on their side whenever they enter a military conflict right so then also there's the economic piece in fact i know xander you referenced the brexit as a soft power move but i would say that this is part of their overall smart power strategy good tell me i'm wrong <laughs> exactly um so the Brexit, I think, is a great example of how the UK is threatening to either wield or take away their economic power, right? They have pretty much all of the powers covered, and moving forward, they're not really going anywhere. The EU could be another really interesting smart power example. They do have a military, but they use it primarily for development and cooperative initiatives, right? To send them on peacekeeping missions. In general, too, it's got its own culture, right? They're, the power of being attracted to this amazing network, like one of the only regions of the world that is actually, you know, quote unquote, cooperating to a certain extent. Right. So what we want to do with this is <clears throat> we all decided we want to do a case study about Okay, what are the options for two powers locked in some conflict to use hard power, soft power, smart power to get their way? Because these are all options. These are all tools in the toolkit. And so you can employ them in different ways. So we're looking at Russia and Ukraine. Right now, obviously, Russia has Crimea and it's probably going to keep it. Yeah. Well... Yeah, if Putin gets drunk enough, he might pull a Gorbachev and do it again. Or was it a Khrushchev? Was it Khrushchev? It was Khrushchev, sorry. Anyway, uh, if you don't know that story, I leave it as an exercise to the reader. So what's going on here, right? Like, why is Russia in Ukraine? Well, part of it's obviously just pan-Slavism. But Russia is ultimately a regional power. Ukraine joining NATO would be incredibly dangerous to its <laughs> ultimate well-being. Here, Ukraine, uh, please, take Crimea back. critical for it. And... One of the reasons is that Ukraine is shaped much like a dagger into Russia's soft underbelly. A lot of gas pipes run through it, oil pipes run through it, and probably most importantly, Ukraine has Russia, well, Crimea, just to be clear, has Russia's only warm water port. So if they didn't have that, they'd essentially in the winter be cut off from launching a navy at all. So, and this of course was after the Hidden Revolution, where a bunch of Western-leaning Ukrainians were tired of the pro-Russian policy. And uh, essentially the president fled and they had a new election. And now they've got a pro-Western government. Russia comes in, busts some kneecaps, takes Crimea, and uh, fosters a rebellion in eastern Russia of a bunch of Russians that want to join Russia. So obviously it was a very hard power move on their part. And I'm sure there was a bunch of soft power going into it ahead of time that Xander will talk about. So they use hard power pretty hard and also took advantage of 
pro-Russian sentiment that they've been that had been there for a long time. I don't know how much they've been building it. But what are the options for the United States? So obviously we're sanctioning them. Now are these sanctions hard enough? Obviously Russia's economy is tanked. They're actually shrinking while everyone else is growing. The ruble has plummeted. The stock market is really bad. So definitely some economic hard power being applied by the Obama administration here. But it also hasn't changed their behavior. And some of this may be due to the fact, I think, that Europe is so dependent on Russian gas and oil that Russia could shut it down. And Russia is probably more willing to put up with economic mayhem in order to get its way than Europe is. And so one of the ways that we look at power is force and will. So if someone has much higher will than someone else, even though someone else has more force, they may have more power. So a good example of this is, of course, Vietnam. The North Vietnamese army was not more powerful than the United States, but they had more will. American Revolution, same thing. More will than the British. Russia has a lot of will to put up with a lot of crap. So another option for hard power could be something that probably Bill Clinton might have done, which is to park a couple of carriers to hang out in the Black Sea, just as he did in the Taiwan Strait when China was saber-rattling about Taiwan. He put two aircraft carriers in the Taiwan Strait in Chinese waters and said, no, deal with it, and trying to back down when Russia invaded Crimea, which, of course, they said they didn't. They're like, oh, I have no idea. Little green men. We might have said, oh, no, there's, like, totally unknown weird people here that are definitely not Russians. We should we should send in, you know, the aircraft carriers just to keep things safe. So that would have been an option. Would that have done better? That's a good question. It was something I was advocating for at the time. Uh, I was quite incensed about it. Who knows if it would have helped if it, you know, but it obviously has the risk of just escalating into becoming a shooting war between Russia and the United States, which we definitely don't want. But Russia is using hard power in a very Brinksman way, and they're gambling on the fact that the West doesn't have the will to follow through with a fight if it comes to that. And so Ukraine was a great example of this, where they said, where Putin bet, like, no, the Americans aren't going to really fall up in a hard way. And Georgia and Abkhazia were the same way. So those are, so South Ossetia and Georgia is a breakaway region. Russia invaded in 2008, Abkhazia even earlier. And so what they're doing is they are weakening the potential allies of the United States on Russia's border by doing this. So I think they've been employing hard power really effectively. Yeah, and this is not the first time that Russia has employed hard power in Crimea, right? If you've ever heard the song The Trooper by Iron Maiden, that is based basically off a poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which is about the Crimean War in the 1850s. And that was Russia being the protectorate of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. And if you've ever heard the league or ever heard the phrase, uh, you know, half league, half league, half league onward into the valley of death, rode the 600. That's about Russia basically using hard power in the Crimea. But, you know, there's certainly history leading up to this most recent Crimea conflict that involves soft power on both the West side and Russia as well. So to understand how soft power plays into the Ukraine conflict, you need to understand that Ukraine is essentially split into a Western and Eastern region. And in the West, historically, it has leaned West towards the EU. It's not in the EU, but it's leaned that way. There were talks about Ukraine joining NATO, 
the Western military alliance. And in the East, there are more Slavs, and therefore they lean more towards Russia, basically. So the West winning over Ukraine after the end of the Cold War, gradually sort of bringing them into the sphere of the EU and helping them get their act together, that could be seen as a form of soft power. Now, Eric is a little bit more familiar with how Russia has how Russia has wielded soft power in the Ukraine conflict than I am. Did you want to bring that up? Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing Russia's doing is that in eastern Ukraine right now, it's giving out Russian passports. Uh, same with South Ossetia and stuff. So I think it's really prepping the ground for eventual annexation. And so they're combining that with some hard power where they just stick some troops there. I mean, they don't. They, do, they clearly don't have any troops in there, but they do. And what they've been doing this whole time is, I mean, with Russian-speaking peoples, they propagandize the heck out of them. And they stir up a lot of pro-Russian ethnic feelings and nationalistic feelings and make these ethnic minorities feel like they are being oppressed. And so in the East, they think of the pro-Western Ukrainian government as fascists. And this harkens back to, I mean, literally the Nazis coming in and taking over Ukraine and the Russians coming and saving them from it. So they've been doing a brilliant job of, of somehow, despite all facts, painting this as a evil fascist dictatorship, trying to oppress the poor Russian peoples and the Russians coming in and saving them from these horrible fascists. It's been brilliant. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I feel like it's my job to come in and give this case study a kind of smart power grade. And typically, you know, how well did it do? Does Russia get an A plus in the A in the smart power category? Typically, I think of smart power as something that one nation wants to do in order to gain worldwide favor. But the thing is, is that Russia that's not its goal, right? It basically understands it wants to be a regional power. So it really comes down to target audience. A great illustration of this is that the implication behind power, right, is that any power is in some way very legitimate and is this moral authority that it wants to exercise on others. I personally don't see Russia having either, you know, legitimacy or moral authority, but in their eyes, they do. 
and it also in their in the eyes of their target audiences they do so it really does come down to who are you know what are your goals and who and how are you trying to attain them i would say obviously it is clear that russia is using a smart power strategy in its region and and it's gaining them great favor so what's your grade what's your final you know if you had to hand putin his his uh his project at the end of the day? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's necessarily good for the world. I would almost give this like an F for the world because I am always going to lobby for a little more cooperation and kind of multilateral diplomacy rather than just uh, regional powers taking over. But, um, but on Putin's part, I would definitely give him a, a B plus. I think there's ways he could look into a little more soft power broadcasting to the entire world, but really like his, his current broadcasting strategy is going really well for him. Um, so yeah, Putin, you get a B plus, A minus in the smart power class. Eric, we should start another podcast. We'll be just like Rex Factor, except yes. we'll call it SAR Factor. Yeah, and we get to grade everyone at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, all of the, the Russian monarchs. Uh, oh, Czar Factor. I see. Czar, yeah. Czar Factor. Czar Factor. Hey, by the way, this is a great moment to <laughs> shout out to Rex Factor, one of my favorite podcasts that I seem to have effectively turned Xander onto. It's the history of all the monarchs of England and now Scotland, and they rate them just like the X Factor. It's a lot of fun and uh, one of my inspirations for doing this podcast. So, Graham and Allie, if you're listening, I love you guys, and I would love to hear from you. Battleiness. Battleiness. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. <laughs> Go listen. <laughs> um, so actually, I actually have a follow-up question for Kelsey. Is there a good smart power move that the United States can make now? We've laid on the economic sanctions. Russia's hurting. Do we wait for them to take their toll the way that they did in Iran, where Iran finally came to the table? Because they're like, this is, we're tired of this crap. We want more you know, money and stuff. Or is this a waiting game that we're going to lose where Russia by holding the line is going to just outweigh everyone and everyone's one day going to go, okay, maybe, maybe Crimea is actually part of Russia and this is just going to be the way it goes. What do you think? Yep. I think this is a waiting game we're going to lose. I think if we're, you know, if we don't get in the game, there's not really many plays we can make. I'm sure Obama has advisors that are giving him lots of different foreign policy recommendations, but he seems pretty set on trying to trying new things and trying to see if other powers might step in and do something. But I think there's a lot more that we can be doing on the, you know, diplomacy front. But I, I want to say that in, in the very traditional definition of the term in terms of like negotiations, I think a really great opportunity that has been presenting itself for years now for example, I mean, you could say, okay, Russia has soft power in the region. Well, they're providing aid to Syria in the form of arms and troops. But they're certainly not setting up first aid tents to help citizens, right? So I think that that's where the opportunity is. These citizens in this region that are going through these conflicts, that's a target audience to be one. I love it. So that's our case study. 
<clears throat> you know, for you, the listener, you get to think about what are our hard power, soft power, smart power options that the United States can use in Ukraine, assuming that the status quo is not your favored outcome right now. And, you know, love to hear your thoughts on what we could take forward. So leave some comments on, well, I think the United States could adopt a power strategy like blah, 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 blah. And here's why. So let us know. Comment section, reconsidermedia.com slash reconsider. Slash podcast. Oh, right. Slash podcast. Thank you. <clears throat> so given that we've gotten some opportunities to look at this stuff, I want to take a moment to talk about the merits and pitfalls of each of these, because I think it's worth noting that, again, they're tools. And I think the point is not that any of them is objectively best. Even smart power, and I'll make my case there, is not objectively correct all the time. But we need to understand how each of these tools work. You know, just like a hammer and a screwdriver. Use them on the right thing. So I'm going to start with hard power. I'm probably a bigger fan of it than most of my kind of academic enlightened brethren in the field. So I'm going to sort of make its case. So I'm big on hard power for the United States when it's used well. So the best example, or the one example I had earlier, was international trade. The United States uses dominant naval power to not get into conflicts and to prevent global conflicts on the sea. I think this is often underappreciated, because I think when people see hard power, they think war. But I think the best uses of hard power are the ones that prevent war entirely. So I think, for example, with NATO, the United States was able to lead with very, very heavy power and investment to keep the peace in Europe by making it clear that, you know, the USSR was fairly expansionist and by making it clear that the consequences would be unacceptable for the USSR and by letting our allies know that we had their backs. So having a credible hard power tool in our belt that we you know, would pull out every now and then and say, hey, we got it. You know, it's still here. Check out those A-10s. They'll make life hell if you try invading. After the Cold War, I think the United States' presence in Europe has actually been a big part of what has allowed it to be a peaceful continent. So I subscribe very much to, and this is a interpretation of reality rather than a strategy. So this is realism. I subscribe very much to the idea that the United States as a Leviathan that says, hey, we're going to come in and knock anyone who makes too much trouble, gives Europeans the space to not suffer from the geopolitical conflicts that they suffered from for 2,000 years when there wasn't a global hegemon. I think a good way that the United States in the 90s made this clear and showed its consistency and willingness to deploy hard power was in quickly and decisively reacting when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. We countered the Iraqi invasion and we set the precedent that the United States would not allow foreign land grabs in the modern world order. And it's actually been pretty astounding how rarely that's happened. You know, the new conflict is largely internal, it's non-state. But state actors just don't mess around the way that they used to. And I think the United States' use of hard power, not passively, but by implication as opposed to through consist, you know, through having to use it a lot, has been huge. The very fact that we have so much hard power, we're willing to use it, is a big part of why we don't have to use it in order to keep the interstate world order together. Yeah, totally. And 
it sounds kind of counterintuitive at first, right? You need a lot of guns so that you don't need to shoot them at anyone, right? But that's kind of the tenet of the theory that underlies the U.S. as a global hegemon, that since no one can challenge that power, interstate wars don't happen as frequently as they used to. Of course, hard power has a lot of risks. If you actually need to pull the trigger, you need to be willing to follow through. And that can be pretty expensive, messy, and I think most unpredictably, it can have unintended consequences. You never know what's going to happen when people start shooting at each other. And I, I, I want to emphasize this unintended consequence bit because I think that's the least predictable aspect of an effective hard power strategy. Once war starts, events occur that you are just forced to react to and very frequently are faced with two bad choices to pick from. War almost never proceeds according to plan. So pressing the trigger carries a huge risk of uncertainty. It's where the phrase fog of war comes from. Good time for a shameless promotional pitch for Eric's side project, fogofwar.com. And I'm, I'm shamefully not updating it all that often. It's a good blog. It's fog, F-O-G-G. Two Gs. It, so check that out. But for just just an example of how these unintended consequences can, can kind of come up and come out of nowhere, right? So we used hard power in Afghanistan initially to coerce the Taliban to stop hosting al-Qaeda. And that turned into a quagmire because we didn't really fully understand what our exit strategy was, what the situation on the ground was going to be. And now after we, well, leaders at the time thought Iraq too was related to Afghanistan, so take that as you will, but we got pulled into Iraq too seemingly to topple Saddam Hussein and prevent ma weapons of mass destruction proliferation. And now we're facing something arguably far worse than Saddam Hussein ever, ever, you know, represented. With the rise of ISIS, Iraq is threatened. It might not be a state in the very near future. And the whole balance of power in the Middle East is compromised. So this is an example of the unintended consequences that can come from hard power. Additionally, hard power really relies on consistency and credibility. So saying that you're actually going to pull the trigger, if you are, if, if people don't believe you, then that hard power threat becomes less effective and you can actually risk a conflict. So in recent memory, when Obama drew that infamous red line in Syria with Assad's use of chemical weapons, and then nothing happened. That really damaged the U United States' credibility. Um, I'm not saying we should have gone to war in Syria, but maybe we, we, we should have been more careful about making a threat that we weren't actually willing to follow through on. There's also this self-reinforcing aspect of hard power that's you know related to the culture that develops around who's actually implementing those hard power policies. So Hard power, generally the military, right? So if you're a professional military uh, person, you know, whether you're in the Navy or in the Marines or the Air Force, wars are a way to add accolades to your resume, to gain important and frequently in certain time periods rare battle experience and thereby advance your career. Yeah, and more simply, of course, when you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when in particular in countries where the military is a big part of foreign policy decision-making as opposed to simply a loyal tool of the civilian apparatus of the state, they tend to say, we've got a problem, let's go shoot it. 
There's also way more money spent on hard power capabilities in the U.S. The U.S. Department of State plus USAID budget was $45 billion in 2015, and the Department of Defense budget was like $585 billion. Now, granted, the DOD does a lot more than just, quote, use hard power and point big barrels at, at different people. The Department of Defense also ensures freedom of navigation in international waters, which is a public good uh, that a lot of nations benefit from in terms of free trade. So the, DO the DOD budget is not just hard power. It's also subsidizing goods and security goods that the rest of the world consumes. Well, I want to stick up for hard power here because I think that is using hard power. Because the way we ensure freedom of navigation is we say, hey, we've got a bunch of big guns here. I'm going to blow you away if you mess with it. And so it's one of the, I think it's one of those examples of where someone goes, oh, well, that's – so sorry to call you out, Sander. But someone goes, oh, well, that's not really hard power because we're not actually doing anything. Well, yeah, the reason we don't have to do anything is we've got 12 aircraft carrier battle groups. And if you even sneeze the wrong way, like in 12 minutes, they're just going to blow you out of the water. And I think that prevailing – implied threat not in a mustache twisting evil way like yes but just the the fact that you know we've we've drawn the line that we will fight to protect international waters and by the way we're just so much more powerful than any of you that nobody even thinks about it and i think we don't you know i think that a lot of people don't appreciate that 20 years ago that just wasn't the case i mean even world war ii we had u-boats sneaking up on our shores it was crazy and that's just unthinkable now I'm not opposed to the use of hard power to make way, to, to clear the way for soft power. But I think there is, though, too, an imbalance. And I don't know if you guys have heard that famous quote. I think it was Condoleezza Rice where she mentioned there's about like 6,000 foreign service officers, U.S. foreign service officers in the world. And that there's more people. Therefore, there's more people in military bands than they have in the Foreign Service. So I think there's a little bit of imbalance. Just going to push back to you, Eric. We will all have to reconsider. Ugh. I hate, <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. This is precisely why you tune in. Some might say that the best thing about hard power is that it's quick. It's easy to find, it's quick to implement, and there's typically a proper way to evaluate what happened and, and what to change for the next time around. I just don't think it should always be our first thought. We shouldn't always lead with or think with our weapons. Personally, I'm looking forward to more leaders in the future that understand all the diverse ways to respond to a crisis and don't default to always calling DOD. So as we mentioned earlier, soft power really depends largely on cultural appeal. So if your, cultural, if your culture is unappealing, it may take a long time to develop attractive characteristics of it. On the plus side, if your culture is already attractive and it is instead your policies that are giving you issues, such as the United States right now, as a lot of people are arguing, then that can actually be a good thing since policies are easier to change than cultures. The problem with soft power is that it, it takes much longer to develop and wield, you know, than hard power. It's also typically not able to be measured, and therefore it's really hard to evaluate. But it can be powerful, and I think it's a type of power that just gets overlooked. But the right to obtain access to information and access to conversation, that's toppled governments. 
cultural understanding and religious freedom or the persecution of it can upend entire civilizations. I mean, especially Syria is a great example of that right now. The entire Middle East is a whole region of the world that practically bends and sways with each press release and each draft of a constitution. I think the tools of communication and mutual understanding can be wielded much more effectively when we just get them in coordination with all of our other tools. Yes, I certainly can't disagree. I mean, obviously, don't think that soft power is a bad thing. It's a great thing. But I think it's unreliable for security purposes. And perhaps we are so accustomed to being fundamentally secure that we have we have forgotten the fact that it is our, I think, our hard power that really does keep it secure. The United States and the European Union have the luxury of being able to use soft power first due to their massively overwhelming military advantage. We're only talking about, I think, leading with soft power because nobody can really mess with us. And that's because of all the hard power. And that includes our economy, of course. Uh, people want to trade with us and we're able to use trade deals and lack of trade deals like sanctions as well as guns. And I want to make sure that we remember that those are part of our hard power toolkit in order to get people to say, well, it's better to get along with these guys because they're always going to be different cultures. Hopefully they're always going to be people who see the world in a different way. You know, I don't know how much we're going to convince the Chinese that they should live like us. I don't know how much we're going to convince people in the Middle East that liberal values are what they should embrace because there seems to be a big rejection of that. And, you know, if we think about the Arab Spring, for example, I mean, it was a bloody disaster. And I think that was a, an attempt to use soft power to say, you know, and, and I know a lot of Western leaders came out when these protests were happening. They're like, yeah, democracy. Yeah. You know, topple those terrible dictators. And it's just been a mess since then. So I think that soft power can frequently backfire. And so I think it's something that we need to be, you know, we talk about we need to be careful using hard power. We need to be very, very careful using soft power as well. And I think a lot of countries just don't have the luxury for soft power to be where they put their foot forward first, right? So if you tell Pakistan that it just needs to use some soft power and it's like rest of Northwest, like Fatah, or Japan, that it just needs to use some soft power to woo China, I think you're not going to get that far. And I think, for example, with China, with dealing with China and Russia, it's just really, really hard to imagine penetrating the vast cultural gaps we have. And also, I mean, the propaganda states that they have. And so maybe it's just that they're using soft power better than we are. But I think that we need to make sure that we, when we're talking about soft power, need to understand that it has some massive limitations. And it's possible that the internet and access to more free thought has helped in some places like Iran, where you've seen the rise of some much more liberal elements. I mean, obviously there were some liberal elements in Libya that led in Benghazi, but now Benghazi is run by a bunch of essentially gangs. But, you know, in Iran, it's been a good thing because there's been some pressure on the government. But also, I mean, frankly, the thing that's made policy changes so far has been hard power. It's been sanctions. And so I, I worry that the United States misapplication of hard power has given hard power a bad rap. And we want to like, I don't want to pivot too hard to soft power. And I risk telling people what to think right here, but I just want to make sure that the, that the case against soft power is also made because I think it's just so intuitively attractive. Mm -hmm. And so 
that is what brings us to our final evaluation of smart power. I mean, that's why I want to encourage listeners to consider this as, as the sweet spot. That's why we need these two forces, these two dimensions of power to be working together. They're just more powerful when they are used together, more effective. And I personally want to lobby to not have such a divide between the two. I think a great illustration of that to insert here is the the famous recounting of Edward R. Murrow when he was advising JFK. They would always bring in the PR guys, the communication guys, whenever disaster struck. And after putting out so many fires, Murrow was finally just really like straight with the president and said, you have got to include us in every meeting, not just the disaster meetings, you know, include us in the takeoffs and the landings, because that way we can work together. I think the obvious downfall of smart power that we have, you know, personally experienced throughout this podcast is maybe the fact that it's not quite defined yet or that there are just a few examples and we're, and we're figuring out to use it. Essentially, I would say stick to the definition that Joseph Nye provides. Power is the ability to alter the behavior of others to get what you want. And so if you look at the basic ways to do that, there is one, coercion. Those are the sticks that we're talking about. Two, payments. Those are the carrots. And then three, attraction. That's your soft power. Any sort of foreign policy move is likely going to be stronger if you're able to combine all three. Again, certainly can't disagree here. One of the things that's on my mind right now is, you know, I know you mentioned that Clinton and Obama have talked about, Hillary Clinton and Obama have talked about their use of smart power in the world. And frankly, I think it's, my worry is that something like you know, something under the guise of uh, smart power can ultimately be fairly inconsistent. And I think that in terms of getting people to do what you want without having to actually take action is in having consistency. So again, for example, all the stuff that we don't see, ha all the bad stuff that we don't see happening and in the Cold War and post-Cold War world, all the wars that didn't happen, I think were due to consistent application of our power strategy. Now, I don't know if the Obama administration is just not using smart power well, or if it's a fundamental problem with the ambiguity and the definition of smart power, but I worry that the lack of consistency that we've seen in the last two administrations could be a black mark against the new so, uh, new smart power thing. I don't know what you think about that, Kelsey. Mm -hmm. I agree. I can see that happening. I think it needs more practice. I think smart power has got to work out its kinks. I don't really see any other way forward except for to look at the context more to, you know, the context in which we develop policies to observe the nuances, to try out different methods. We are living in a more complex world every day. And that I think, you know, necessitates more complex policies. I think it's gonna be rough at first 
doing that because we don't know how to do it. We're all, you know, alongside our global leaders coming into this new era. So I think this discussion that you do, both of you guys just get, got into really is pointing – it's an obvious question, right? Why shouldn't everyone be behind smart power? It seems almost like too obvious a question to even really debate about, but it's not. And I think that that almost naggingly obvious question points to another bigger question that is slowly starting to materialize in people's minds, which is does America have a cohesive foreign policy? So there's two aspects of this, theory and practice. So theoretically – have we thought out and do we have a well thought out understanding of situations where we would be willing to use certain types of influences like hard power versus soft power versus smart power over others? And under what circumstances would we be willing to spend massive amounts of U.S. resources to influence a world event? And when would we not? When are we willing to send Americans to die abroad and in which are we not? And if we don't, have a firm understanding of what situations we're willing to do this in, then, well, there is no theory. Now, in practice, you can ask, are our administrative bureaucracies structured in a way that lets us effectively wield all the tools in our toolbox? So I think a great example of how a bureaucratic restructuring can actually yield a more practical outcome is the Goldwater-Nichols Act. So the Goldwater-Nichols Act is a great example of a tangible improvement. Long story very short, it was a bill in the 1980s that restructured the U.S. military. Before this bill, each branch, Air Force, Navy, etc., was basically just on its own, and each had their own mission. So in World War II, the Air Force had an Air Force mission, and the Marines had a Marine mission. There was not a whole lot of direct collaboration between the branches. The Goldwater-Nichols Act restructured the, the U.S. military such that all branches of the military sit under a single regional command. So this restructuring allowed a single mission to be pursued by all branches of the military with a cohesive strategy based on the region that they were in. So the question that I'd like to pose to you is, on the practical side, in terms of America's foreign policy, do we need some sort of similar bureaucratic restructuring, administrative restructuring, to let our soft power capabilities work more effectively and more in tandem with our hard power tools? I don't have the answers to this, but hopefully you've now run into a question that reframes one aspect of the foreign policy debate for you. You know, that, that actually just now reframed it for me. I've been talking about, you know, my big thing has been consistency, consistency, consistency. And the thought I had, Xander, when you were talking about, do we have a cohesive strategy about when we're willing to do stuff and not? And I think the other aspect of that is, even if we do, I don't think we do, but when we do, is that well communicated, right? Because I think we need to be, as far as being consistent and as far as being cohesive, we need to communicate very well what those conditions are. So, you know, for example, the red line, we need to be able to say, we need to be able to know and then state to everyone, hey, look, here's what, here's where we're going to crank up the dial and we're going to start using our money, our guns, and our, our people's lives to influence world events. And we are powerful enough as a nation that that level of consistency, if it's there, should 
you know, should have a major impact on people's decision-making calculus or other nations' decision-making calculus. And so maybe, this is the thing that just crossed my mind, maybe when I'm talking about consistency and my concerns of it, this is a question that applies. It's an orthogonal aspect of foreign policy and diplomacy, you know, as it is not that smart, perhaps it is not that smart or soft power or fundamentally less consistent because you can use hard power inconsistently and it's disastrous. So maybe it's just a, just a separate axis that we should be thinking about. And maybe that's less of a debate, right? Of course you should be consistent. The duh. And, uh, and so maybe that's, that's helping me rethink my approach to soft power and smart power. You know, if we're able to have cohesion in whatever strategy we're choosing, is that going to, you know, probably that's going to improve the application of whatever strategy we're leaning to in a different situation. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite quotes in Joseph Nye's The Future of Power is the world is neither unipolar, multipolar, nor chaotic. It is all three at the same time. To me, that's such an opportunity in which to try out innovations in our foreign policy and to really seek to reach that level of cohesion that you're talking about, Eric. This playbook is ours to write for sure. So what an awesome way to close us off, Kelsey. I'm inspired. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great talking to you. I mean, I've learned stuff just right now. I mean, obviously in all the conversations we had beforehand, but just right now I've learned a bunch. I'm very grateful. Hopefully listeners loved it just as much. And for those of you guys who want more Kelsey in your lives, which you should, because she's great, just Google Women in Diplomacy podcast. It's the first thing that comes up. Find her on iTunes as well. Uh, and subscribe. Listen in. Check out our interview and check out the rest of all the of what Kelsey and all of her cool guests have to say. Thank you guys so much. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Kelsey, for, for coming on. This was a really fun discussion to have. So, everyone, thanks for listening in. Uh, remember, you can follow us on Twitter at ReconsiderPod, also on Facebook at ReconsiderPod. You can find us on iTunes. Our website is ReconsiderMedia.com, and you can listen to all of the podcasts, get all of our links with nice little graphics and images and maps that we accompany for each show on our website, ReconsiderMedia.com slash podcast. So, as always, remember, don't let the pundits think for you. Pause and reconsider. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.